This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. Jonathan Bennett and I talk this week with John Mertick, who's the Director of Program Management at the Linux Foundation. Big focus for him is mainframes, open source and mainframes. Whole big topic there, much bigger than you would think, because there's some things only mainframes can do, and open source is kind of new to them. So that's a big topic, and that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 702, recorded Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. Open source and mainframes. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV's training solutions provide professionals and enterprise organizations the education needed to kickstart or advance IT careers and upskill through engaging training and virtual labs. Get 30% off when you sign up at itpro.tv slash twit and use code twit30 at checkout. And by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat, devoted to simplifying tech topics and providing insight for a new generation of IT professionals. Listen to Compiler in your favorite podcast player. Hello again, everybody, everywhere in the world. I am Doc Searles, and this is Floss Weekly. I'm joined this week by Jonathan Bennett, Alpha co-host. There he is. Hey, Doc. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't move around. You just like maybe change, maybe change a chair every once in a while. Um, haven't changed still a chair in a long time either. Yeah, we, <laughs> no, I I, I've, I've invested quite a bit of sweat equity into getting the uh, home office here set up, so I'm going to take advantage of it. <laughs> They're going to say, put a lot of sweat equity into staining the leather in this chair. <laughs> well, that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> so I am in an unusual place. I am over. I'm, I would turn the computer to show you, but I'm afraid I'd disconnect something. But I'm overlooking uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. Um, and like about 150 feet above the lake, which stretches out in all directions. What looked like a bald eagle went by yesterday when I was talking to Ant about this. I'm, I, this is at a borrowed house. I've hardly ever been here. I've been here once before. It was to test this out. I'll never be here again. <laughs> and, but I'm probably, but anyway, I'm talking to you through, tethered through a phone um, because there is actual cellular connection here. It's a satellite connection for internet and is not Starlink. It's the older pre-Starlink where the latency is years. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm looking okay. Otherwise, I'm surprised it's working. But yeah, it Doc, is. you move around enough. You ought to just get one of those uh, Starlink RV connections and, and just throw out your backpack <laughs> and go with that. It it has occurred to me that if 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 a Starlink gets portable enough, you know, where it's it's like a small case, I could. A briefcase I can unfold and a whole thing pops up. It's a possibility. <laughs> it's really a possibility. Yeah. Not that I'm the camping type, but I carry this mic. This mic goes with me to all places. And this is a, a laptop and all this. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to travel in that sense. So um, our guest this morning is, is John Murdoch, who I think has been on at least twice before. Um, he'll correct us in a minute, probably, if I'm wrong about that. You, yeah, I did. You, I did a little research before we started, and it's like, oh wow, he was on back when uh, when Randall was here. And I, I, you know, I searched for his name in my in my uh, mail threads, and it's like, oh well, here's where I almost got to co-host with him last time. Uh, yeah, I thought it, you did. I thought you were the co-host last time. I I may but, have been one of the times, and then the other time <laughs> I wasn't. 
Um, I, I did not do a whole lot of research at a time, <laughs> but of course yeah. he's tied in. He's part of the Linux Foundation. He's working with uh, Open Mainframe, which will be fun to talk about. Uh, lo- looking forward to, yeah. to really picking his brain about those things. Well, we'll get on that today. So th- let's get right into the show. Um, and welcome John Murtick. He's the director of program management at the Linux Foundation. There he is in his lair. So where are you? Where are you on on the planet, uh, John? I am in a little town uh, called Doylestown, Ohio, which is just outside of Akron. And if you don't know where Akron is, it's just outside of Cleveland. And if you don't know where Cleveland is, it's somewhere <laughs> between New York and Los Angeles is kind of the yeah. best way to describe where we're at. Um, well, but, yeah, in my normally, home office one, here. Well, normally I'm one state away from you. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. But um, okay. Uh, nor- normally in a sense that I've been there for like a year, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I also live in California and I go to things. And so we get around. So um, what's it, tell us first how, if and how program management at the LF has changed uh, over, since we last talked or if, or I mean, at all, think, or they're just going I to mean, what you do. Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit, we we've definitely grown. Um, you know, you, if, if you keep up with the news, you'll see that, you know, the Linux foundation, we're always bringing new, um, new foundations and new focuses and new efforts within. So I think we've seen a large area of growth, um, with our team has definitely grown, but I think also the one thing that we do is we just learn from a lot of the experiences that we have. I mean, so much of, we're the Linux Foundation's culture and how we approach open source comes from the Linux kernel community. And, you know, we've built upon that by working with additional communities, working with like the Kubernetes community and the Node.js community. And then as we've expanded, we've started working with a lot of different, um, you know, verticals, um, you know, such as the motion picture industry, the automotive industry, the energy industry, and a bunch of others. And so I think while, you know, there's definitely new people and new things, I think the biggest thing is just we just learn so much from the groups that we work with and not only just the amazing people, but the uniquenesses of how that collaboration happens. It's the one thing that I've always appreciated about open source is, you know, I've, I've been an open source for over 20 years now and every project is a little bit different. And there's always just such uniquenesses, um, not just from the personalities, but just the cultures of the group that you really have to embrace and, and understand it and really appreciate. And you learn from those things and you say, wow, this might plug in and be useful here. This might be a useful tactic here. Or this is something I should never do ever again because it was a really bad idea, um, which you get those occasionally. But uh, I think that I think that's the biggest thing that, that, that I've seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, one of the things the Linux Foundation does is spawn other foundations and so there's uh um like we had brian bellendorf on uh recently and he was with the hyperledger foundation and now he's with mm-hmm. uh security in some way what how does a foundation make a foundation is that or is it just called that i'm not even sure what the legal um or the regulatory structure of that is yeah it, it gets a little bit nuanced in there i i think what what we as a, a Linux foundation, um, there's well over a thousand open source projects and efforts that that we're hosting um, here presently. And depending upon just sort of the size and scope of what's um, you know being worked on, some of these uh, groups are coming together and are, are trying to do very you know large scale things. So like you know Hyperledger, for example, 
was really trying to, you know, pull together a lot of the blockchain technologies um, that were out there so that he could have, you know, multiple different applications in, in different areas and not just, you know, Bitcoin and uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, but, you know, in more broader areas like, you know, um, insurance and finance and, and government and things of that nature. Um, the one Brian's working right now with is the Open Source um, Security Foundation or, you know, for short, OpenSSF which is really trying to build a center of gravity around the best practices of security in open source. But we also see a lot of those also just leakage out and just to technology in general with things like, you know, software supply chain and, you know, other best practices that you see. So, you know, what we, what we see is we see parties that come to us and say, you know, we need a place that we can collaborate. You know, we could go individually and do this in different places. You know, we could, you know, create like just like a, you know, a partnership or things like that. But what moves a lot of these technologies forward is a neutral location that this can happen. Right. You know, so it's not any one company that's owning it, not any one company that's controlling it. But you have a multitude of different companies um, that, that have a piece of it and everything down to the code. I mean, you know, if you're familiar with the Linux kernel, one of the interesting things is there's no one person that owns the copyright to all that code. It's every single person that's made a contribution owns it. So you have this interesting sort of um, a, a lawyer might call it a weave mess. I would call it, you know, a cool commons that comes together where to really make decisions on licensing and different changes, you would have everyone um, as a part of that. And that's the fabric of every single project we host here as well is, is those pieces. And, you know, for these companies, they see a huge advantage, not only for them, but also just for the ecosystem that they're working with as a whole, because they can bring their competitors in, they can bring partners in, they can bring all sorts of other individuals in, to collaborate on uh, amazing technologies that really help move their groups forward. Um, you know, one of the ones here that I'm working with, which is also adorns the t-shirt that I have, um, is the open mainframe project, which came together because there was a, a great need to have a neutral home for the open source that was being driven in this industry. Because many of these players were doing open source, but they said, you know, it, it works better if we have everybody on board, everyone contributing, because then we can build things on top of this. We can drive a lot of the investment this way. We can leverage the collective expertises of all of our different engineering teams and, you know, and, and just strategy and all that. And we just see that pattern just repeated over and over. Like everyone who's coming to us, that's like there's sometimes there's a little different, you know, nuanced reasons or industry reasons or things like that. But the core is exactly that piece. We want to come together. We want to collaborate on something that we recognize is bigger than any one of us. And how we see this as successful is having it a neutral entity where we all have an equal stake in it and not somebody has a greater stake than one another. And those are also projects that are sustainable in the long term because they can they can weather the storm of different players, different people getting involved over time and, and they can evolve throughout time. So it's it's really a cool thing that we start to see. Hey John, so I want to jump in. I'm I'm curious about sort of the the good that the Linux Foundation can do for a bunch of different projects, maybe even projects that aren't directly under its wings. Um, and of course, me being me, security is one of the things I'm going to think about. Uh, and uh, there, there's a story that's still kind of hot. It's uh, in Python, uh, the tar implementation in Python. Uh, I think Python dash tar is what they call the module. Has this. 15 year old bug in it where 
you can have an archive, a tar archive that contains uh, sim links and files that are you know dot dot slash dot dot slash. And so when you uh, unarchive it, it will go up directories and then you know over and then unarchive something in a different place. And so the the real problem there being that someone can uh, without knowing it overwrite something important like slash edc slash password. Um, and one of the things that I've seen that it, in some of the, you know, the Linux Foundation um, uh, media information, some of the things that you all put out, is that you guys are trying to work on this um, code security and security for, for all projects uh, and trying to eliminate some of these kind of... Um, shall we say institutionalized problems maybe that are in different places. I'm just curious mm-hmm. if there's any, any kind of services or even guidance that, uh, that LF gives generally speaking. And do you work with little projects on some of the security problems? So we are seeing security things coming up hugely across a lot of our projects. And, you know, I've they, you know, I've been a software engineer in the past and, and I think how we've all been trained to think about security is, is more of like an intrusion, you know, penetration aspect. Like how is somebody getting into our app and logging in? But right. I talk with um, industries to say, hey, you know, th- this code is being used behind a firewall. It's not connected to the Internet, so it should be fine. Why, why do we need to care about security? And the thing that I would, <laughs> you know, I would I would go tell them is, is, OK, well, where are you getting the software that is coming to your system? And they might say, well, it's, you know, from such and such, some open source project. I'm like. How do you know the the lineage and the and the provenance of that? Because you could go install mm-hmm. this package, and then all of a sudden somebody had embedded some sort of nastyisms, and um, I don't know if nastyisms is a word, but we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> that all of a sudden you have a ransomware attack on your on your infrastructure, right? And mm-hmm. imagine if you're trying to you know run a hospital and that happens. It would imagine if you're trying to build a, a, a motion picture and all of a sudden you're locked out of all of your assets. Like the, these things get real. And I, and I think that's an aspect that we've begun to start to see over the last couple of years. Um, this isn't my best area of expertise. I mean, I think when you talk with Brian Bellendorf, um, he probably was able to add a lot more color, but that's been an area that's been hugely growing. I mean, I think, you know, Sonotype did some surveys and it was like 650%, you know, increase in the last couple of years. So it's, it's a huge, huge area. I think what we're the recognition you kind of have to have about security is that it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. And one part of it is there's an ounce of prevention in there, which, you know, comes to having the infrastructure to be doing um, some of this testing, you know, whether, you know, that would be, you know, fuzz testing, you know, intrusion testing, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, Another piece of it, um, comes in is just practices. So do you have a practice to, if somebody sees a security issue of how to even report it? I mean, there's a ton of open source projects that don't. Um, do you have expertise within your project that can identify that and know how to address it in a secure manner? And, you know, and then outside of that is how can you can make sure that you sort of have that sustainable aspect to continue those investments with time? And I think that's one of the fabulous things that the Open Source Security Foundation has been really focused on is helping projects give a sense of guidance of what a good project looks like that can respond to security and address security in a proactive and then reactively in a timely way. 
And if you look at the uh, what was the CII um, Core Infrastructure Initiative Best Practices Badge, which um, is re- being rebranded as the OpenSSF Best Practices Badge, that's one of the big aspects of what it's about is these are the best practices that you do within an open source project. If you're doing those, pretty good chance that you're going to be able to respond to security issues in a very timely manner um, and be ahead of them. And there's other initiatives that they're, sta- they're standing up. Um, they've built a scorecard mechanism as well that's able to kind of look into your repositories and say, hey, you're, you know, this is this is a grading of how things are going, you know, based upon the code and how you have it structured. And, and less of like code quality, because I think that gets very subjective, but more of the objective things of, you know, do you have the right pieces in place? Do you have the right uh, structure and governance to go about it? Um, and then we're even seeing, you know, broader um, efforts like Project Alpha Omega, which is actually looking to invest funding directly in that, especially in projects that don't have that funding available. Because um, some of these have really become ones that in our creative, our collective conscious just kind of float in the back. You don't think about, but they power so much of our Internet. Um, you know, the, the Log4J, which uh, was a big thing um, a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. a very similar sort of scenario there of just low investment, but high criticality um, and trying to make sure that there's a balance to address those. I think in addition to that, one of the things that we have seen our project communities start to do, and we have um, great partnerships here with our training arm, is building training out for communities on how how to do open source well. And I caveat everything with that is there is a lot of different ways to do open source and Things work in one community that don't work in another, and I'm, and I'm completely cognizant of that. But there's a lot of just great base knowledge to have to really be effective in that realm. Um, and we have a ton of open source 101 training available. We have a lot of open source security training available. And we have ones um, in different, you know, sort of, um, you know, specific areas like Kubernetes or blockchains and things like that. Most of this is available for free um, because we just we, we really think it's so crucial to have this knowledge out there. Um, and some of it, you know, there's there's different certifications you can do, you know, depending upon where your professional direction is going. But, you know, I would say the one thing that we see valuable out there is to make sure that there is um, great knowledge of how to do open source well from the individual level to the company level with things like the to do group um, from the the measurement level with things like the chaos project, which which is really focused on how to drive great metrics in there. And then I think more broadly is just seeing how our industry is evolving and recognizing that, you know, diversity and inclusion are major parts of that. And having that is also something that we see as a part of, you know, the Linux Foundation as a whole, but also a lot of our individual projects as well, because they're seeing that as an area that as they begin to grow, making sure that it can be an area that brings in, you know, diverse groups is is really, really critically important. So it, 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 there's just a lot of different areas that we see gaps. We try to go out there and provide either a way to address it or bring together the smart people that know how to do it and give them a forum to do it, which um, oftentimes we kind of like to see more because we want those smart people out there that know how to solve these problems and and really help pull things together. Excellent. An excellent answer. I'm going to follow that up. I know you said that security is not your thing, but this is kind of more of a philosophical question. I'll get you to, to yeah. kind of ruminate with me. Um, when, when I think about security and open source, one of the things that we've seen reasonably recently, and a lot of this actually is a result of the war in Ukraine, is protestware. And that's the idea of, particularly when it's open source, a developer, you know, 
gets to feeling passionate about what's going on. And in some cases, it will be as simple as uh, he'll put a log message in every time, you know, his application runs or his library gets called. It'll spit a log message out that, you know, says something about what's going on in, in some place. Um, one of the notable examples of this was uh, Node IPC. Uh, the developer of that included a new library linked to called uh, Peace Not War, I believe was the name of it. And it did the same thing. It it spat out, you know, a, a message of support for Ukraine and all of that. Uh, except if it detected that you were an IP address coming from Russia, it would attempt to wipe your machine. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, dear. That, that, oh one dear. Was, that one was not quite as uh, peace, love and rainbows as, as it not claimed so to much. be. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, what if and what the conclusion is that you and or the Linux Foundation have come to. Uh, about what is acceptable when it comes to protest where like are we even okay with our machines uh you know when we call a library it it has a off topic message it wants to tell us i mean that's that's almost like uh, uh in at in app advertising in a way and it, it's just mm-hmm. a, it's just a weird place that we've come to and it seems to me i wrote about this on hackaday too in fact i'm pretty sure i coined the term protest where but that's that's not the point um but it seems like we almost need to come together and figure out a guideline. Like, what is acceptable here and what are we going to consider malicious? And some of it's obvious. Wiping a machine is malicious. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty obvious. But at what point is log spam malicious? That eventually becomes a problem, too. Yes, yes. And I want to I want to caveat the early remark. It's not that security isn't my my thing. There's just a lot better people than I am at it. Um, so um, I'm I'm a big fan of security here. Um, but there's going to be a lot smarter people that if you really wanted to dig into that, they would be the better people to talk to than me. But I mean, I guess, I guess on the topic, you know, it's really interesting in open source communities because sometimes I get a lot of questions when companies are looking to open source something that there's kind of like a fear of loss of control. And mm-hmm. I always, and, and I've learned this from a lot of my colleagues that I've talked to this, talked to them about, and when you kind of look at open source governance, there's this concept of legislative versus effective governance. And legislative is like the laws you write down, you know, thou shalt, you know, do a release like this. This is how your voting works, yada, yada. But then there's this concept of effective governance. And what we see in open source communities that are successful is that they, they generally drive by consensus even if that means it's a lot of work to get to that consensus. And mm-hmm. even if sometimes, you know, I can count probably on one hand, the number of times that I've been involved in um, working with an election or a vote with a particular community where there wasn't a consensus vote. And, and, and these are ones that have industry competitors all at the table. So it's not like there wasn't um, tensions that were there, but there was a greater look from those communities of, um, we know in the end of the day, working together is better for all of us. Um, forking is, it happens, but it can, it can sometimes cause a lot of fissures and, you know, frictions within communities. So I, I think it's, it's, and so when we look at sort of the concept of effective governance, you know, when I talk to these companies, I'll be like, you know, yes, you're going to get other people in the project that are maintainers and committers, and they're going to, you know, they're going to have differences, opinions and things like that. But in the end of the day, they're going to look at you as the people that brought this here and have a high degree of respect and 
um, look at you for advice because they knew like you've put the hard work into getting it to this point. And they're going to look to you to, they're not going to want to kind of turn something that's directly against you. They're going to want to work with you um, and know that you're a partner at the table. So I know that kind of probably in the surface seems like I'm, you know, entirely dodging the question. I, I think when we're <laughs> thinking about though, this concept here, I feel like there'll be probably a social aspect that comes into play that helps drive a little of this forward. I, I could imagine, and again, I'm not as directly familiar with um, the library in there, but I can imagine that even for people that may not have been directly affected by the machine wiping out, they probably weren't all that thrilled about it. And I'm, I'm sure, and I don't know where this resolved, but I, I would assume that maybe that functionality went away or was sidelined. I don't know for sure, but I, I, it would stand to reason that that would be the case. I, um, I think I think the developer got blacklisted from every website that hosts code, and one of his uh, code maintainers took over the project, and everything got cleaned up. If I remember correctly, well, that solved the problem, so that's good. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I see that a lot as like communities have this great ability to sort of self-correct because you know generally they want to be forces for good, and you could argue that a lot of you know what may be some early intents there were intents to be forces for good. Um, sometimes it runs off the rails, and. I see this also a lot in a lot of the work that I see in diversity and, and especially, you know, there's been a lot of work in like inclusive naming and things like that. And, you know, if you look back through history, um, well, you can always find bad actors in anything. I often believe that there's a lot of great intentions where a lot of these things were happened and maybe these folks just didn't realize the after effects of, of what all that means. Um, I would call it if there's a group that really wants to get together and say, Hey, we should set some like best practices and guidelines. Um, I'd be, I'd be up for that being a, a Linux foundation project. If somebody really be interested in it, I, I think that would be a really cool idea. I mean, I wouldn't want, and I wouldn't ever position that as like the Linux foundation says X. Cause I think that's not where we look <laughs> to be. But what I would rather think is we have a group of really smart people that care about this quite a bit that are coming together and collectively saying, Hey, this is what we think is right. And, and that's, and if you look at the heart of every project we host here, that's what it's all about. Like we don't write any of this code, um, especially me. Cause you don't see my code. It's awful anymore. Um, <laughs> the smart people write all the code and, and that's what we look to empower and give them the space so that they can focus on that. So um, I bet that probably didn't directly answer the question you're after, but hopefully that gave you at least a way to think about it. Well, that's a, that's a great answer, and um, I have kind of a follow to this uh, that goes in another direction. But first, I have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Whether you're looking to start your career in IT, master the profession, or develop your own team, IT Pro TV offers virtual learning solutions for everyone. IT Pro TV has more than 5,800 hours of IT training with current content added daily, so courses are always up to date. You learn by doing. IT Pro TV sets itself apart with hands-on learning via their hosted virtual labs. Join an online community of IT learners. There are over 220,000 of them. Share in forums and engage with instructors directly. Uh, with courses, you can binge in 20 to 30-minute episodes. You'll also have access to IT Pro TV's searchable transcripts to let you zero in on exactly the information you need. Uh, learn when and where you want on a desktop, Apple TV, say, or Roku, or hit the road with your tablet or a mobile device. 
Each month, IT Pro TV offers free webinars you can watch, catch the live broadcast, or watch on demand at your convenience. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Catch the following IT Pro TV webinar coming up for the month of October on Thursday, October 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. All Things Cybersecurity will run with Tim Medin, CEO of Red Siege Information Security. Also, be sure to check out their cybersecurity free weekend on October 15th and 16th. Tim Broom, co-founder of IT Pro TV, says it best himself. We want to make life easier for people who want an IT career. It's as simple as that. Get 30% off when you sign up at itpro.tv slash twit and use code twit30. That's 30% off when you sign up at itpro.tv slash twit and use code twit30. IT Pro TV, build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey. Okay, so so John, I'm wondering about how open source and and your your organization or your many organizations' involvement with it are changing corporate culture. I bring this up because um, right now we're sort of in as in between um, economic time when some things are growing, some things are shrinking, some categories can't hire people like fast food or trying to hire all over the place can't do it. Um, and yet I know from people I know in the staffing and recruitment world, nothing is more valued than programmers. Nothing is more valued than people who are technically adept. They're getting top dollar. They're doing well. Um, and I would imagine they have influence inside the company yet at the same time I've been hearing over and over again, this is going on. I mean, I was at Linux journal for 25 years almost. Um, that um, companies can't tell their open source developers what to do because they have to work in these communities you've done so well describing, especially with effective governance. I really like effective governance. But I'm wondering how this percolates back into a company that's busy in many cases. Like Intel just laid off a bunch of people. I guarantee they're not shrinking out their programmers for the most part. Uh, but what is this doing inside to change corporate culture itself, both functionally and in welcoming open source and getting leadership, as it were, from open source and even cooperating within a category rather than competing at the cost of everybody. It's really interesting because what, you know, I think we often see in tech that the value moves its way up the stack over time, right? So, I mean, if you would go back a couple decades you know, there is a lot of competition that was happening at the open at the operating system layer, you know, different variances of Unixes and things like that at play. Um, and, you know, as Linux really came on the scene there and, you know, to a degree also some of the BSDs as well, you know, we, we saw that become less of an area of competition. And then we started to see things move up the stack. Um, you know, with the advent of uh, cloud services, we've seen, you know, so much of uh, the services that were offered at a lower level, all of a sudden the value moves higher up the stack. And where we see that happen is where it creates efficiencies in you know our cultures and things like that. Now, if you look at that from a company standpoint, you know if if you're looking at an average application today, roughly eighty to ninety percent of it is comprised of open source, um, which most people don't really even realize. And you know, and this is if you go the entire layer down from frameworks to, you know, support libraries to things like that. I mean, almost all the way down to the OS layer, that's a very common theme that, that you see start to emerge. 
So I think as companies that, that I've talked to have begun to look at the technology they're developing within, there's a couple of questions they begin to ask themselves. One is, what's our specialty? Like, what, what are we known for? What is the unique thing that we're bringing to the table? And, and not to be, you know, facetious here, but is it, is it a database interface library or is it a really cool end user application? Um, and, and sometimes that's actually not a facetious discussion, but you, you know, that I'm trying to kind of help draw a point here that some of these common layers that are at the very bottom companies quickly realize it's like, we don't need to invest developer man hours to a high degree on that. Like that is something we can leverage an open source project for, or we can um, help contribute to if it doesn't fit directly. And we're seeing a lot of companies continue to move that up the stack so that they can focus their investment at the things that are unique. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you all the talent at the bottom, you know, splurges itself out. What we see is a lot of those are collaborating in these different open source communities because in some of these areas, there's just only limited amount of expertise that's out there. And it's really hard to cultivate over time. And these companies see that, you know, these underlying parts are really, really valuable, but we know we can't develop these out completely on our own. Um, I mean, this is something I think the mainframe community, especially not to come back to them, I think have, have really started to see is that there's a lot of very core skills um, and core abilities, you know, to be a mainframe administrator or programmer that um, are, are kind of hard ones to replicate in some areas. And being if the idea is to really mass grow um, an industry and, and help, you know, bring a whole new you know group in making it so that the mass part of that, it's easier for them to leverage the technology, makes it much more sustainable. It doesn't get away from the need for the people that understand the lower levels of it. But what it does do is it gives those people the ability to collaborate on it and come together on it. Um, You know, think about it as something as silly as maybe like, you know, the iCal standard for um, calendaring. Right. Um, if you've ever tried to implement that as a developer, you know, it's really, really hard. Um, and then you also have calendaring clients that do kind of wonky things with it that you have to pay attention to. You know, if a company is you know, building a product or an application and a customer requirement comes in is like, I, I need to be able to subscribe, you know, the, the things out of here into an iCal calendar. Maybe it's like tasks or you know, deadlines or things like that. A developer could go like write all write a, a full iCal implementation, but then they're going to struggle with every single bit of the weird peculiarities that happen when Outlook integrates it with it or Google Calendar or something like that versus there's a library out there. They can use that. And when they run into those peculiarities, they can contribute back to it. And now you have the collective knowledge of moving that forward is with this group here, but it's for the benefit of, of all overall. So you know, I, I think we are starting to see a lot of that mindset with companies as well, where they're saying, hey, we're doing some cool things and we think other companies could benefit from it, too. And it's not necessarily a special thing to us. There could be other, other companies that are into it as well. I mean, you know, we've seen Netflix and is, has been a huge pioneer in this area with number of tools that they've released out there. And they're not the only I mean, there's there's tons of companies, big and small, that have done the same thing. I think the other angle that we see is that companies, while they find they have a level of expertise around a technology, they recognize to grow it to the point where it's changing an industry is bigger than them. Um, You know, I think Google probably realized that a lot with Kubernetes, you know, many years ago. Uh, In the mainframe space, we have a project that's called Zoe, 
which has really been focused on, you know, how can we create modern interfaces to a ZOS mainframe? And, you know, there was a number of companies that came together there, IBM, um, Broadcom, which was then CA Technologies, and Rocket Software. And we've seen other companies come to the table too, like BMC Software and Viacom Infinity and a number of others that have had that same recognition as well. It's like, hey, we can build this. We have the expertise here, but this could go so much farther if we had this whole industry wrapped around it and everybody contributing and everybody building from this. And it's an efficiency for all of us. And I think we're starting to see a lot of the, the company cultures being able to change in there of, of thinking less of um, the, the, the secret sauce and the proprietariness as sort of a differentiator, but maybe starting to see open sourcing as sort of a faster path to market and a faster way to evolve an industry. And in some cases, actually being a way to set them ahead. You know, so they're seeing this concept of open source is, is not something, hey, we're giving something away for free, but we're putting ourselves out of the market as like the leader in this area, um, which is really sort of a fabulous way to do. I think another thing is we've also seen is it's changed how collaboration happens. And, you know, we've seen companies sort of take the concept of open source and bring it into their companies with InnerSource, uh, which in many cases has helped with large companies that might have many lines of business with independent developer teams being able to converge and work together on, you know, tools that are very applicable across the business. So it, it, it's changed a lot of the culture in there. And I think in the companies where we've seen this successful, and those tend to be the ones that are adopting open source program offices, they're also recognizing of, it's not that we're maybe scared of these open source developers who can't make a mad or anything, but I see actually more in companies where, these open source developers are underappreciated for the work they do. And it's hard for them to tie back to the bottom line of the company. And those offices are coming in there and saying, hey, let's recognize the work you're doing out there because you're doing great things for us, um, not only just from a technology standpoint, but also being able to showcase us as a leader because you know, more and more people that are looking for development jobs, they're going to companies and seeing what are you doing in open source? Because that's, that's a key part of, their ethos and culture of what they want to be as a software developer. Hey, so I want to jump back in and I don't know that we've talked about it a whole lot, but uh, open mainframe is one of the things that you're really, really involved in. And I know we've talked about this in the past and I just, I can't remember. Is this, is this mostly the IBM mainframe? You know, the, the thing that still exists that you don't see very often that has its roots back in system 360 and, and the old heavy iron stuff from the, from the seventies. Um, is that what open mainframe is still about? It is. And, and that stuff goes even back farther from the seventies, even into the fifties. Um, we, it's really interesting if you trace the lineage of open source, it, it goes all the way back um, into the 50s with the mainframe community at events like Share, where uh, these were these mainframe, these early mainframe programmers coming together. Um, they were encountered with a new IBM mainframe and they're like, we got to work together to figure out how to use this really well. Um, and they began to collaborate by sharing code back and forth. That's the name of the organization being Share. And, you know, it, Everything in technology, if, if you talk with somebody who's been in mainframe a long time and you talk with any, but any modern technology trend, they tend to kind of smirk at you a little bit and say, oh, geez, we did that in mainframe, you know, X number of years ago. <laughs> and in many cases, they're not wrong. Um, but I would also say in open source, we have so much to learn from there as well. One of the, I think, earliest open source projects, even before the concept of open source or free software was a thing, 
was a project called CBT Tape, named after Connecticut Bank and Trust, which is a bank that's been defunct for decades now. But it was a, a systems programmer there uh, named Arnie Castanillo that came and said, wow, we're passing all of this great code back and forth, but it gets lost really quickly. Like if you don't know, like this guy wrote this or this person wrote this, it's hard to find it. And he said, I'm just going to get this all together and put it on a tape. And, you know, since 1970, that project has been distributing, you know, a couple of tapes a year of this. Um, in the early days, you had to send a couple bucks in the mail um, with a nice letter and, you know, Arnie would catch it up and actually send you a physical tape. You can still get a physical tape today if you really want to, if you send him a couple bucks in the mail. Um, but this, you know, if you talk to anybody that's been in the industry, they've, they've, they're, they're so familiar with it. It's, it's a tool that's just kind of bailed them out. And, and we're actually seeing a resurgence of that project, um, you know, here in the open mainframe project. But yeah, I mean, a lot of what this work is, is around the software and applications, um, you know, around the IBM mainframe, um, whether that would be Linux, um, which is a, a huge growing operating system, the mainframe, it's been a part of the mainframe since um, 1999 with work at Marist and early vendors such as SUSE Linux, which were really behind it. Um, but also uh, ZOS, um, which is kind of the predominant um, operating system and kind of traces itself back to, you know, system 360 um, and ZVM and similar technologies, kind of the, the open source communities and work that's done around that. One of my one of my favorite bits of history about open main, about mainframes and how they actually impact us is the first microcomputer. Well, the first microprocessor was designed, of course, by Intel, but it was designed with I believe DataPoint was the name of the company, and they were making a terminal for talking to mainframes. And they mm-hmm. put all of these components together to make a smart terminal. And then uh, a fella came along, and I cannot recall his name. Um, but he came along and said, Hey, that chip that you're putting in that would be great for us, a little standalone computer. And some of this history is still being uncovered, actually, but apparently he built something called the Q1, which was a teletype machine with a microcomputer, a, a, a microprocessor in it. He actually used the 8008. And then Intel said, Well, that's interesting. And then they developed the 8080. <laughs> And the rest, of course, is history with Altair and Altair Basic and, and you know, a company called Microsoft making software for micros. Um, th- there is a lot that actually we owe to the, the world of mainframes. And I find, I find that stuff fascinating. And the, the craziest thing about it is these things are still at work. And yet most of us, even people in the industry, like I have, I have been to data centers. I have done data center installs and you still, still, hardly ever see mainframes in the kind of data centers that I walk into. It's, it's so odd to me that these things are so important and they're so hard to get to. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is um, in many cases, a, a single mainframe could take the place of an entire data center. Uh, I mean, that's the amount of computing power that these things have, um, you know, and, and you, you actually see a lot of cases where people are looking at Linux data centers and as a cost reduction and, and also just kind of for the environmental benefit, they'll be like, we could reduce down, you know, a hundred, you know, Linux x86 servers into a single mainframe and still have capacity to grow. So, I mean, these things, you're right. I mean, they're just, they're, they're sort of a cornerstone. They're in the background a lot of times, um, but they, they run, they continue on. I mean, they're, they're, they're one of the few platforms that I really know of that are built with like design principles in mind of security, performance, uh, scalability, um, and, you know, stability. And 
all of those pieces come together when they're designing these boxes. Now, they're not a box that everyone needs by any means, you know, but if you have the case where all of those points you need, um, and, and not to go all spinal tap on everyone, you need turned up to an 11, this is it. Like, this is the only box that can do this. So, you know, if you're a financial services company and you're needing to process millions of transactions a second, this is the only box that can do it. Like the cloud can't do it for you. Um, you know, you know, sorry, Google and all those, but the, this, this is the infrastructure that can do it. Um, you know, if you need a machine that literally you can swap all the parts out of while it's still running and it doesn't shut down, you don't have to reboot or anything. This is it. I mean, you can you can Google and find pictures of mainframes tipped over in rubble after earthquakes that are still running um, and still processing at load with no problem whatsoever. So, I mean, the, these are machines that are that are built for the long haul. They're they're built for sustainability and they're built to be really able to handle pretty much anything thrown at them, whether, you know, technology wise or um societal uh you know uh, wise as well what exactly where where does open mainframe itself sit in this um i i know there is at least one or two projects that it allow you to emulate mainframes on x86 hardware which is fun because mainframes do a lot of emulation of x86 hardware these days um where is open mainframe that project or is it a uh, sort of a, a body that helps different companies with their mainframe projects? What, what exactly uh, is the kind of the problem say, space that the open mainframe bit of the Linux foundation solves? So the problem that it's after is how can we ensure that mainframes um, are well connected with where modern enterprises are going and, you know, we live in such a great era where there are multitudes of computing choices that you can pick from. Um, and they all have different strengths and weaknesses depending upon where you're after. You know, we have edge computing, we have, you know, distributed, we have cloud and we have mainframe and, 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 and all sorts of other even options even in between that. And a modern organization in a future forward looking organization rather starts to change the view of what their computing infrastructure is. It doesn't look at it as sort of the cost of doing business. Like we've got to have 20 cloud, you know, servers to do this, or we need to like install these edge nodes. It's like it's something we have to do, but they, they transform their thinking to this is an opportunity for us to be different. This is an opportunity for us to uniquely engage our customer. This is a new opportunity for how we operate as a business. Cause they realize it's like, if we just, you know, go by the same thing everyone else did, we're just going to be just as good as all of them. Um, so, so that's sort of the mindset of these enterprises. And the challenge where mainframe is always fat it, fit in is it's just different in a lot of ways, um, you know, both from an integration standpoint. Um, you know, ZOS is definitely a lot of a different animal of, of an operating system in, in many regards. And we've often seen in many of these enterprises that use mainframes, there's almost a little bit of a drift that happens between the group that manages the mainframes and the rest of IT. And mm. what we really try to do is say, you know, there's there's unifying technologies that help this mainframe be better used across the organization. And that's the open source that we really focus on. So an example project is Zoe. Zoe is a project which came together of saying, let's create 
modern interfaces, REST interfaces, um, you know, command line tooling that you could just you know run on any sort of laptop, um, you know, web desktop environments, such that it's really easy for somebody to integrate with a mainframe. But more importantly, I can tie that into the rest of the things I'm doing. So, you know, if you have a command line access to a mainframe that looks like any sort of other, you know, command line, um, like, you know, on Linux or whatever, you know, you can do some Ansible scripting against it. You know, you could, you know, build out, you know, build deployment jobs with it. Like you can do so interesting things that way. Um, you know, if you have REST APIs to your mainframe, you can use those to integrate the data and applications there and pull them into other line of business services um, that can benefit from the work that's being done there. And what it's really started to do is make it so that these mainframes, that the footprint of those actually we start to see in organizations is starting to even grow a little bit because they're realizing is like, oh, wow, now that I can tie this mainframe into other areas, I also see an opportunity where maybe there's areas where this mainframe can be useful for me on applications I have in different um, parts of my business. So it's almost in a way like bringing it all together. But where we fill the gap is, is the technologies that make the connection between the mainframe as it is to the rest of where a modern business and, uh, you know, their IT services are. So I, I have to I have to get this in because it's hilarious. Uh, Phoenix Warp from the chat. As you were talking, he was asking kind of the same question you were you were answering about whether the mainframe model is going to be obsolete. And then he says, isn't this like Blockbuster trying to wait to stay trying to find a way to stay relevant with Netflix around. And I think that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I think the little bit of the difference here is the, how ingrained mainframe is into our culture. And not to say that blockbuster was not a cultural phenomenon for the time that it was there. <laughs> but I think the reality is, is that mainframes do things that no other platform can do and no other platform is really optimized to do. And what they do, they do really well. Um, you know, there's been countless, you know, times that you, you know, you, you see out there of people like, we're going to get off our mainframes. We're going to move away from this. And, and a lot of those projects fail. Some of them is just because the, the, le- the level and depth of the complexity of the applications on there. But more often is that they run into the, the, the things that they're trying to accomplish from a, technological and performance and security and and scalability standpoint, they can't find another platform that does it well. And so they end up having to make all sorts of compromises over there. And when they start making those compromises, they realize they're actually setting their business back and they're setting, you know, their users back. And, you know, that's just not a solution for them. So um, I, I think it's just a lot of what this platform brings to the table. That's so unique. It's, it's it's that security state stability you know scalability and performance that just again if you need all of those this is it like there's no other choices out there period end of sentence um and and i think that hopefully makes it a little bit different than the, the blockbuster analogy although i, I applaud your person the audience it's a cute one too <laughs> so uh w- one more thing we want to get into on mainframes but first i have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat devoted to simplifying tech topics and providing insight for a new generation of IT professionals. It's hosted by Angela Andrews and Brent Simino, and Compiler closes the gap between those who are new to technology and those behind the inventions and services shaping our world. Compiler brings together stories and perspectives from the industry and simplifies its language, culture, and 
movements in a way that's fun, informative, and guilt-free. Do you want to stay on top of tech without the time spend? An original podcast from Red Hat, Compiler Presents Perspectives, Topics, and Insights from the Tech Industry Free from Jargon and Judgment. They want to discover where technology is headed beyond the headlines and create a place for new IT professionals to learn, grow, and thrive. Compiler helps people break through barriers and challenges, turning code into community at all levels of the enterprise. In one episode, they cover the great stack debate. The software stack is like an onion or a sheet cake or a lasagna, or is it? It's often described as having layers that sit on top of each other. The reality is much more complicated, and learning about it can help any tech career. The great stack debate is the first episode in Compiler's series on the software stack. They call it Stack Unstack. They explore each layer of the stack, what it's like to work on them, and how they come together into a whole application. Another episode covers, are we as productive as we think? The pressure to balance productivity with passion projects, personal responsibilities, or just with the need to rest is challenging. Their team spoke to tech-minded creators in the productivity space on how to achieve full focus and how to make time for work, relaxation, and creativity. And I've listened to that one, and it's really important for now because productivity is, we haven't talked about it on this show, is is going in all kinds of new directions as open source filters its way into the way companies themselves work. Learn more about Compiler at red.ht slash twit. Listen to Compiler on your favorite podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to Compiler for their support. So, John, we understand you have some news about a mainframe that may actually be in your possession. Is that right? Well, not in my physical possession, uh, because <laughs> I feel like my family would be a little bit unhappy that we would have to, like, relocate things in our house here. Um, but they might find it cool, too. I don't know. But um, we were we have been fortunate that um, Broadcom Mainframe Software has donated a IBM Z15 and um, disk storage and tape storage uh, to the project for the intention for us to make this as a resource available to any open source project that would be looking to support mainframe, whether that would be um, Linux on the S390 architecture or uh, ZOS. Um, you know, both of those are instances that we're able to provide. And uh, the hardware is hosted at Marist College, which is another great partner. And we have a, another great partner, Viacom Infinity, that's helping us on the back end of the administration, but also just kind of getting through of how to get hardware like this established and another bunch of other companies that are donating software. But the intention is, is that any project that has uh, ever said, I wanted to support a mainframe, but I don't have a hardware to do it. This is it. And, and I've been involved in the open mainframe project for seven years now. And this is the number one question I've always got is great. Hardware seems really cool. How could I use it? And it's, it's hard to get access to these machines. And so we're, Fortunate that in 2023, we're going to be able to bring this uh, machine up. We're still working on some funding aspects, but um, we're really excited that this is really, I think, for one of the first times. I mean, there's been some little efforts over the years. Um, you know, Doc, you probably remember the open source development labs um, a few decades ago. There was um, a little bit of um, mainframe infrastructure available for some projects, but at this scale um, and this breadth, it's never been done before. And we're, we're super excited um, for this community that we're able to offer that.
So, so I, one of the, one of the interesting <laughs> things about that, um, I, I covered a, a story not too long ago, um, about a security company that set up their own little mainframe workshops so that they could do security research on them. And they, they did an audit on a customer and they found some problems. Um, but all of the problems that they found were configuration errors. Like the, uh, let's see, um, the old mainframes supported keyboards that had extra keys on them. And the, IT infrastructure didn't necessarily take that into account when they were designing the menus and such. So, you know, they, they figured out this way to kind of become administrator on the system, but none of it was actual like problems in the mainframe or the mainframe software. It was all configuration stuff. And you don't ever hear about like CVEs in mainframes or mainframe software. It's been forever since, since we've had one of those. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering, and I'm I'm going to get your thoughts on this too, because I'm real curious what you think. Is that because these things are actually built like tanks, and the software is built um, extremely defensively, and they actually don't have flaws, or is it because they're so obscure and it's so hard for people to get to work on one? And then with you guys maybe offering some some time on a mainframe, uh, do you see it maybe a future where security researchers can get some time on it? and uh, try to poke at the software and hardware and find problems. Well, I mean, I would hope that would be sort of one of the outcomes is, is that we'll see much more of this getting poked at. Um, you know, the mainframe community has really prided itself um, in its security aspect for decades. I mean, this is one of the one of the things they really hallmark back to, and, and even mainframe administrators put a, a such a high degree of rigor on software that just even hits these machines um, for, for valid reason, because, you know, it powers parts of our society. And one of these things has a vulnerability and goes down. Um, we got problems. So I, there are a lot of pieces with the hardware itself that has a security aspect in mind, everything from encryption, from memory, all the way down to the disk, a lot of, you know, specialty um, chips and controllers in there that, that, you know, deal with encryption and, and pieces of that nature. So there's a lot of pieces in there that are part of it. I think there's a lot of part of just the culture of this group of, you know, the rigor they put through with applications on it. But I mean, I, I think the reality is, you know, no piece of software is 100% secure. I mean, it's it's basically just waiting for a security vulnerability to be found. It's it's in there somewhere. Uh, it just hasn't been tracked down. I mean, that's that's just a reality, right? I mean, that's that's you know, it, it sounds a little bit um, you know flippant, but it's true. And what I would hope out of this, and, and we've had a lot of conversations even with the Open Source Security Foundation that that sees a high importance of many of these open source projects out there being able to have a stronger security culture and pedigree about them. And part of the way to achieve that is to have access to machines on different architectures that are able, that, that have some uniquenesses that are able to push your software in different ways. And, and some of the examples you, you know, stated there, um, you know, with those researchers are, are spot on. I mean, mainframes have some interesting things, you know, they use, you know, EPSIDIG versus ASCII, for example. Um, big Edian versus Little Edian. You know, there are technological differences under the hood that depending upon what the level of the application, the language it's building in, there are things you just have to consider. And like you said, there's also just things of how the hardware works 
that there are things that a project could take advantage of that um, may not be things on different architectures that are considered. So, you know, to answer your first question, I mean, is the pendulum all on one side? No. Is it all on the other side? No. I, I think I, I I don't want to say it's straight in the middle because that's probably also a lie. Uh, I think this group has such a high culture of how they think about security that I do think these machines are secure. But I would also say that with any other piece of software out there, it's the same story that the security vulnerabilities are yet to be found. And what we find in open source is having the right culture around it helps sort of move that forward. And, and frankly, also just um, helps address these issues um, faster. So back years ago, Eric Raymond described the two different approaches to software development and particularly open source, uh, the cathedral versus the bazaar. And uh, I think, Probably Linux is one of the great examples of bizarre development. Not bizarre as in strange, but bizarre as in the open air market where everyone can come and sell and add and do their thing. And uh, maybe mainframes are the ultimate example of the cathedral where you have the monks slowly, meticulously working away. They want to get their creation absolutely perfect. And then they push it out into production. I think it's fascinating to see those two approaches. It is. And the interesting thing is, is I think both approaches have stuff to learn from one another. Um, you know, the the truth is, is success with everything, you know, in life ends up being some in the middle. Um, and actually, interesting enough, I think we're seeing a lot more of the the bizarre or I think what we call today is more agile um, approach to development really taking on in the mainframe world because these companies realize they have to move faster. Um, and I think the degree of security concerns and um, patches and things that are needed are so much faster, um, you know, than they were even, you know, a couple of decades ago. I mean, you can look at my, you know, collection of old iMacs back there and, you know, remember, you know, Mac OS classic, you know, operating system, you know, releases were like once or twice a year. And between then you didn't get anything, Right. Um, and now, like, you know, I've got a, a, Man, a Manjaro a Linux box over here that if I don't, you know, do the updates on it, you know, a couple of times a week, it starts screaming at me. So, you know, I, I just think the pace of things have really just started to change and the rigor. And, and I think it's and one half it could be, I guess, frustrating. The other half, I think it's kind of good because we've advanced ourselves of how we think about it um, and how we approach it and the culture that we have around it. I was I was on mute. Sorry about that. Um, so we're getting down to the end of the show here. And uh, I just wonder if you can answer quickly. Um, is there one question we haven't asked that you could answer in a short time? It's, it's been a really interesting show, so it may not be possible. I don't know. No, I mean, I think you answered all the questions. The only thing that I would just slightly plug is that I am working on a book um, in open source. I'm working with Pack Publishing on a book called The Art of Open Source. I'm about... Um, a third of the way through writing it. It should be out mid-2023. Um, and the goal is to kind of take a lot of the things that I have learned in working with these communities and, and helping provide a little bit of a, a guidebook with some examples and some insights from the communities I've worked with that can help um, project maintainers or people just new to the space of thinking about like how you would approach working in open source, everything from the starting up to the the shutting down, which is an inevitability in life. So I guess I would insert my shameless plug, but other than that, you asked all great questions. 
That's 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 good. We like our plugs. We're going to get to it in a minute. Um, uh, the final two ones. I'm sure you've answered before. It'd be interesting if they've changed. Uh, what's your favorite text editor and scripting language? I am a big uh, VI user. Presently, I'm using NeoVim. Um, I use it. I use it. For, I mean, I don't do a lot of like writing code anymore. I do some. Like I said, it's pretty horrible, but. Uh, I'm actually writing this book in NeoVim here, um, which is which is kind of a lot of fun writing it using that and Markdown and everything. So um, that's been a big um, a big one for me there. And I think the scripting language um, it can be a bit all over the place. Um, I, I do a lot of work in Python traditionally. Uh, you know, I first really got started in software development. I did a ton in PHP, but that's when I was doing a lot more web focused um, you know stuff. I don't do as much PHP really anymore. I think I've been doing just kind of a lot more Python these days. Um, but like I said, my Python code is pretty horrible. So, um, I, I, I wouldn't hearken for anybody to go look me up on GitHub and see the stuff I've created. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've just, you've just prompted a bunch of people to do that. They're <laughs> <laughs> forking all my repositories and like, it's sending all of these pull requests. Like what the hell were you thinking, John? No. <laughs> uh, patches are welcome. That's the answer. Patches are welcome, right? <laughs> That's great. Well, John, it's been awesome having you on the show. It's been a great show. I think we learned a lot. Um, yeah. And the back channel seems happy, too. So thanks so much for being on here. And, Thank you uh, for inviting me. This has been this has been fun chatting with you all. I, I love coming on this show. You're you're a great um, steward to open source, um, you know, both of you. And I, I, I really appreciate the hard work you put into this. And, and you too, man. Take it easy. Thanks. Thank you. So, John, that was good. Oh, yeah. We took the shotgun approach for sure. Yeah, I talked about a lot of different things. Um, Always, always fascinating to hear about the Linux Foundation and kind of all the things that they're doing. And and I know, oh, I know there's some subset of developers that maybe look at them a little skeptically. um, But, you know, there's good folks there and they're they're trying to they're trying to be helpful. Um, Mainframes. Mainframes are so fascinating to me. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Stephen Levy talks about them in in his book, and you know he describes the the mainframe guys as being essentially the the priests. And they would take your back in the old days, you know, you would write code, and they would it would come out on either on tape or on uh, punch paper. You would take it to the priest, and then the priest would go and put it into the machine, and then take the result back and give it to you. Uh, we've come a long way since then, but it's still um, it's something. I I I I need to come up with a good excuse to get some runtime on their mainframe when it comes up and figure out which one of my projects that I have a finger in would be like, Oh yeah, we could come up with a way for that to be useful on mainframes. You know, maybe zone minder, like we, we can handle a million cameras on one mainframe using zone minder or something. It'd be fun. Well, I, I like recognizing that there are some things that only mainframes could do and, and that you really can't take um, uh, a thousand or a zillion um, micros and make a mainframe out of it. A mainframe has a has a um, a bunch of callings that are not what you find on your desktop. It's not a desktop thing. It's a it's meant it's made for big things and uh, um, you know banking and and uh, space and I suppose a lot of other stuff. We didn't go into what exactly where all these things are going, but um, it's kept IBM in business even as they got out of the micro business. You know they've. They've always been about that, and uh, yeah. and it's true for some other big companies. It's um, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's an important, it's an important topic and we need to hit on it every once in a while. Yeah, we we could spend another couple of hours, I think, talking with John and and maybe another mainframe guy about all of the different places that it's in, the differences between mainframes and microcomputers, whether mini computers exist anymore, how supercomputers fit in there. Uh, throw back to the Beowulf cluster. There is so much space to cover in this, and uh, it, right, yeah, we didn't even bring up Beowulf, right? Yeah, <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> yep, yeah, fun so, stuff. So what have you got to plug, dude? Okay, so the two things I've got. First off, hackaday.com, as you can see right here. somewhere there it is. Got the plug going on the show. Um, keep up with the security column. It goes live every Friday morning. Uh, need to get to work on that later today. Cover all kinds of fun stuff. Um, we'll probably have another mainframe story this Friday because I went to look up a source and discovered a part two of a blog article about mainframes. So we'll, we'll cover that again, but all, all kinds of good security stuff. It's the things that I find interesting and that you need to know about. And then the other big thing to mention is the Untitled Linux show. That is a club twit exclusive. We tape it on the discord and there is a, uh, club twit exclusive feed for it and we have a blast just covering linux news and tips and all the stuff you need to know about linux so i want to plug uh next week which is going to be marcus sailor jr this is one we've had planned for some time i know it's going to be a good show so that is coming up then so thanks everybody for being with us another week and i am doc searles this is floss weekly and we'll see you then Hey, folks, I'm Matt Pruitt. I have a question for you. How do you think your hardworking team with a Club Twit corporate subscription plan, of course, show your appreciation and reward your tech team with a subscription to Club Twit? Keep everyone informed and entertained with podcasts covering the latest in tech. With a Club Twit subscription, they get access to all of our podcasts ad free. And they also get access to our members only discord uh, access to exclusive outtakes and behind the scenes footage and special content like the fireside chats that I enjoy hosting. Plus they also get shows like hands on Mac, hands on windows and the untitled Linux show. So go to twit.tv slash club twit and look for corporate plans for complete details.